Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox. Trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com slash business. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slate money and using the promo code slate money. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Shaking Things Up edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by the celebratory Kathy O'Neill, who has just finished a draft of her book. We're going to talk about her book. Hi, Felix. When are we going to talk about your book, Kathy? Oh, my God. As soon as it comes out. Okay. Well, there is a book coming um, at some point. We also have the married Mr. Jordan Weissman. Yes, uh, Mr. Jordan Wash Weissman. No, we actually didn't hyphenate. I'm still just Jordan Weissman. And did she take your name? No, no, God, no. We don't. We, neither we, of us are. We don't believe in such things. No, we're we're a good feminist couple. Important question: What what's the last name of your kid's going to be? If you have kids, that's probably going to be Weissman. Although, but it's been really hard to spell. It is, but actually, Wash is. I still su- can't spell it. Wash is surprisingly hard too, because everyone tries to spell it as Walsh with an L in it. I don't know why, but that just happens to her all the time. So we both constantly have misspellings. You should just come up with a third name, which is easy to spell. We could for your just kids. Du- like Jordan W W for Wash Weissman W squared. Mm, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Did you get, like, matching W tattoos? No, we haven't done that. Uh, Don't think I didn't suggest it, though. (laughs) (laughs) All millennials need tattoos, right? It's like some weird compulsory thing? We actually are all tattooed immediately when we we were in the 80s. There was this experimental... Is there, like, a tramp stamp for infant thing going on? (laughs) Basically. I popped out at Mount Sinai, and there was just, like, a dude with a beard and a needle. Like, all right, here you go. I'm going to put a little Chinese character on your back now, a little... <laughs> it means fierce. We are so <laughs> off topic at this point. Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, and also whether and why tattoos get millennials or millennials get tattoos. I'm actually going to have. We're going to talk about this. I want to get like the 
producer of Ink Master on the show. Mm. We can talk about the economics of tattoos. That'd be awesome. I think that's, That'd be really fun. That's going to be fun. But this week, we are going to talk about the Fed and whether it should be shooken up. We're going to talk about um, the UK election, which I'm a little bit sad about and what it all means. But first, we are going to talk, Kathy, about Larry Summers' favorite topic. Really? It is. He Every single time he goes on stage, he starts moaning about whenever he goes to China, the airports are fantastic, and then he flies back to America and he feels like he's in a third world country. Yeah, well, I think he has some some rights to complain. Um, well, Larry Summers, probably not. And we'll get, to, we'll get to why he particularly doesn't have much cause for complaints. But yeah, it turns out that um, Asian airports are just a lot better than anywhere else. Um, Skytrax does a uh, annual survey. They have like 14 million people answering the survey. And they found that the top five airports in their survey were Hong Kong, Munich, Seoul, Singapore, and Tokyo. So we got like one, only one airport, Munich, outside of Asia. Why? Why is that? Felix, what are your theories? I have like 17 theories. Well, I, as someone who spent a fair amount of time in Munich Airport, I can kind of half understand this. And actually, the other ones, too. Like, they're not my kind of airport. My kind of airport is London City Airport, where you just fly in and you're in a cab within five minutes. Mm. And you, it's like an in, 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 in and out deal. Yeah. Or Honolulu Airport, you know, small, or Burbank, or something like that. Whereas Munich is the largest airport I've ever had the misfortune to have to walk through. It just goes on and on and on forever, and it's acres and acres of, like, gleaming white high-end shopping mall. And if you like gleaming white high-end shopping malls, I'm sure that's great, but apparently that's what everyone wants in their airports these days. Yeah, you know, I I just kind of naturally dislike airports. I feel like there's just something spiritually off about them. They're just a big place where everyone else is going elsewhere. No one wants to be at an airport. No one should really want to be at an airport. So the idea that like Asia and or I guess Germany have better airports because they have they're basically big malls is just kind of strange to me. That's not the purpose. But I think there's also um, there's some economics here to talk about, um, which is that Larry Summers brings up the airport thing because it's it's part of his spiel about infrastructure spending, just how the U.S. should be doing more of it. And one example of our failing infrastructure is just the kind of cruddy state of some of our airports. But he, so here's the question, yeah. which I have, which is if we turned JFK into a gleaming high-end shopping mall, would that count as infrastructure investment? See, I don't think it does, no. Because part of the, I, the, the big deal with infrastructure investment is that it, it gets a big multiple, I mean, it has a big multiplier effect, meaning every dollar you invest into infrastructure produces more than a dollar in the economy. And that's because it's an investment. It helps the economy itself run smoother. You know, it, the plane, more planes can take off and land. There are fewer delays, whatnot. Um, if you're just building a mall in an, you know, you're just building retail. That's not really like, that's not infrastructure investment in a, in a classic sense. Okay, so... I think you've kind of missed what people actually like about these airplanes. I've, <laughs> okay. I've, I've, it's fascinating to read these things. And by okay. the way, I suggest that everyone at some point in the next two days look up reviews of the upper class lounges of these airports. Um, is for that, is an amazing. Am I going to pick reading. up like a pitchfork after doing <laughs> that? You very well might. Okay. I but, was so disappointed last time I was in an upper class lounge. I, I decided to get a massage because I had this really weird knot in my back and they charged me for it. Wait, can you pronounce that again, Felix? <laughs> Wait, um, can you just uh, say, pretend we, we never heard that? Can you say the word massage again? <laughs> what? Massage? In, in Singapore, in particular, sausage? they have butterfly gardens, movie theaters, places to sleep, and a golfing range. 
Yeah. It's like way more than a mall. Yeah, but it's still, it's just, a, it's a theme park. It is a theme park. And it's a theme park that in Asia is in some sense, at least this is my theory. My working theory is that in some sense, it's like a showpiece for the world. It's a way of attracting visitors. And I feel like in New York, we don't we don't need to attract visitors. So, well, visitors I mean, are coming anyway. Visitors are coming. It's true. No one ever talks about Charles de Gaulle or some amazing airport, but people still go to Paris. Exactly. But I think it's it's all part of this sort of national pride thing, right? So if you're Korea and you're very proud of the incredible um, economic miracle that you've had over the past few decades, the showcase, the entrance hall for your country is Seoul Airport, right? And so you invest in it. If you, to this day, travel around Japan by train... Everywhere you look, you see this slogan of ambitious Japan. They, like, treat the train system as a sort of national icon. And in most countries still, they have these things called flag carriers, which are the national airline, and it represents the nation. And people are proud, and the, and the country is proud of representing itself to its airlines, to its airports. And that's something which just doesn't happen in the U.S., and maybe it should, and maybe it shouldn't, but either way, it's nation branding, it's not infrastructure. Yeah, and we don't have a nationalized airport uh, airplane service carrier and that's a really good point. Another important point is that not all Asian air- airports are actually very nice. Like only the big ones in big cities. So it has something to do with population density. It also has a lot to do with how new they are. And it also has to do with where are the international flights coming into. Mhm. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about like Boston Logan International Airport, um, it was built in the whatever 50s or something. And ever since then, it's been over capacity. And they're always arguing with the neighbors about adding one more airstrip and yeah. it doesn't get passed. And that's the kind of obstacle you have in this country for actual infrastructure changes. That, I was going to say, that's actual infrastructure spending. Yeah. Adding that airstrip so it's not over capacity is useful and probably would have some kind of multiplier effect. Whereas some of the airports now when they're sort of lobbying to raise local or they're, they're, they, they'll lobby to raise like the fee that you put onto an airplane ticket, for instance, yes. in order to get that raise. They'll say, oh, well, if you up the fee so that we can spend this money to upgrade our facilities, more people will want to travel to New York or Dallas or something. I mean, it's very strange. No one is actually traveling to Dallas because the airport there is particularly nice. They're traveling there because there are things to do in Dallas, and there happens to be an airport that has the capacity to facilitate that travel. And what's more, I'm I'm part of the sort of James Fallow school of thought when it comes to airports, which is that in general, America has too many big airports and not enough little airports. If you look at what has happened in Europe Mm -hmm. over the past... 15 years or so, is that you've had this explosion of low-cost airlines going from small airport to small airport, and it's really transformed the way that Europeans travel around their continent. And that, and we still in the United States have hub-and-spoke hub systems where everyone has to go in and out of a handful of massive airports, and there's no reason why you, know, you should have to change at O'Hare when you want to fly from anywhere to anywhere else, but that seems to be like how America works. It's also true that people spend way more time in airports than they used to. Because of the hub-and-spoke system, because they have to change that. And because of security. And that brings me to my final point with airports, which is I think there's something very American about the shittiness of our airports, which is that it delineates the classes more strongly. So... It's it's shitty in almost all parts of the airport except for the lounges. And I know you had a, a particularly oh, bad the, experience. The, the, the American lounges are dreadful. <laughs> Not all of them. 
Oh, they are. They're really bad. You should read the reviews, man. But I mean, <laughs> Felix and... doesn't need to read the reviews. <laughs> He's, he is the first-hand experience here. Aren't, is it, but isn't there a lounge per airplane, like per airline in like JFK? Isn't there a separate lounge for the United Arab Emirates? Like, right, no, no. Exactly. If you, if you go to the lounges for the foreign airlines, those yes. are great. But the lounges in like U.S. domestic airports, the U.S. domestic airlines are just horrible. Even so, I mean, I've seen, I saw a lot of, looking this up, I saw a lot of complaints about the fact that upper-class passengers are allowed to go through security faster, even though it's controlled by, you know, Homeland Security. It has nothing to do with the airline. The airline doesn't control the security, but for some reason, they get, the, those, those, like, middle-aged white guys get through security faster. So I do think there's a level of classism that's just inherent in airports. I think in that sense, it works for them to have shitty airports because and, you can, can pay I for better stuff. can I just say is like, because, you know, I love giving out investment advice on this, on this show. <laughs> um, but the one, the one piece of investment advice I will give to the Slate Money listeners is just do it, people. Invest your 75 bucks in TSA PreCheck. It changes your life. <laughs> it is so it's, worth it. Does it really? It really does. Okay, I've, I've seen... We'll talk, we're going to talk about this after the show. We're going to have a discussion about this. Okay, but before we suddenly move on to um, the economics of queuing for security lines, <laughs> we're going to just bring that topic to a close, and we're going to talk about our sponsor, which is Dropbox for Business, which is just a fabulous service, and you should all try it out. Because, well, frankly... I'm going to make a guess that you're kind of already trying it out, that you already have Dropbox, and you know it, and you love it, and it's easy. And all I'm going to tell you is go use Dropbox for business, because if you, especially if you're running a business, because all of your employees are already using it, and then you get the centralized administration. You can manage the accounts and the billing and the onboarding and the offboarding and the administration solutions and the discovery things that you need for your lawyers and all of that just come layered on top and it's all hugely secure and you can get it free for at least 14 days if you go to dropbox.com slash business and once you try it out you will be convinced that it works that's why dropbox is sponsoring the show because they just say that thing try it for 14 days and you're gonna love it so much that you'll never go back all right dropbox.com slash business jordan Yes. Tell me about the Federal Reserve. So there aren't a lot of causes in Washington that are really bipartisan right now. But it appears that Federal Reserve reform is oddly enough becoming one of them. Um, And there's been talk that uh, Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama has been kind of discussing a a bill to change the way the Fed is structured. But more recently, and perhaps more interestingly, Elizabeth Warren, the superstar Democratic senator from Massachusetts, has teamed up with uh, David Vitter, um, who is from Louisiana and best known to some as the guy who used to patronize prostitutes and was rumored to wear adult diapers once in a while, but also is a rocked rib conservative. Um, those two have teamed up to introduce two separate bills, one of which would limit the Fed's ability to work as a lender of last resort. Now, this is the whole point of having a central bank, right? Is yes. that It's a lender of last resort. Who in their right mind would want to prevent this? Because, I mean... It's a really important power to have in case of em- emergency. So that's that's sort of my take on this. But I'm going to rephrase it the way they would put it, too, just for fairness's sake. I'd say they're limiting the, Fe- the Fed's ability to work as a lender of last resort 
Vitter and Warren would say that they're trying to limit its ability to do backdoor bailouts. So what is this all about? Well, during the uh, during the financial crisis, um, the Federal Reserve was basically the force propping up the banking system by lending out trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, and, you know, in a letter that a bunch of senators. So what you're saying. So yeah. just just to be clear, your idea of a backdoor bailout is a bailout from the Fed, whereas a front door bailout would be a bailout from the government. I think that's what their idea is because, you know, the Fed isn't necessarily democratically accountable the same way the Senate is. So when the Senate has to vote on TARP, that's all on the up and up. Whereas when the Fed just does it, no one really understands what's going on until after the, effect, after the fact and you get to see their balance sheet and whatnot. Um, and they make a great deal about the fact that the Fed's, you know, lended out $13 trillion over time with all their different facilities. That's sort of an exaggeration. That's everything they lended. It doesn't mean they ever had $13 trillion outstanding. They had much less than that at any given moment. But anyway, this has this has become a, a point apparently of unison for both a very liberal member of the Senate and a very conservative member now, of the Senate. Now, is this, is this a bipartisan thing or is this just a weird Elizabeth Warren thing? Are there any other Democrats who support this? This is... This is new, so I haven't I haven't seen a lot of react. But there was a bipartisan letter signed by members of both parties. Point being, this it's not just two legislators who are getting behind this. I should say uh, they are not they are not arguing that they should end the ability to do emergency lending. Um, and there are organizations, but they are saying yeah. that they should end the ability to lend to non banks, basically, which is a huge part of what Ben Bernanke did during the financial crisis. Is he started lending money at Everyone who needed liquidity, whether it was money market funds or shadow banks, or if you needed liquidity in the face of the greatest liquidity crunch anyone could remember, the Fed would be there as a lender of last resort. And that was really necessary. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, Felix, you and I don't have much disagreement here. I'll say I'm going to make my, my bigger point about this and, and just my, kind of my confusion over it. And then Kathy has been looking at me like she may disagree here. Wait, <laughs> so, Kathy, are you, so, are you, are you pro-Elizabeth Warren on this one? Well, I mean, look, the thing about I think I think the thing that might become bipartisan about this is that the all the things that the Fed did during the crisis, which we now question whether they really were necessary as you just described, well, were in we, any I case mean, unaccountable. And it's not clear who did it when and there weren't as many votes as there should be and there weren't as many people putting their names on it. And well, Congress- wait, okay, wait. The Fed minutes are very clear. Mm-hmm. Who voted for what is very clear. Um, sure, the Fed is not an, a, a directly elected body, but what what is unclear about what happened during the crisis so, or whether it was necessary? I, I misspoke. But, for example, like after the crisis when they were talking about the um, – the, the people that were foreclosed on illegally uh, or unaccountably, the Fed was would play the part in taking account of figuring out how the banks had to settle for that. And they sent like $100, $300 to people who are like, had their house foreclosed I, on. I, I know exactly. So, and nobody yeah. was actually voting for that. But what's this got to do that. with no, So this is actually, I think, This is very, part of the Warren Vitter. So I think this is actually important here. There's a lot going on in Fed reform, right? And- Vitter and Warren have another bill that deals specifically with changing the way the Fed records votes on regulatory actions, things like approving settlements, right, for let's, if banks are doing something wrong with foreclosing on houses when they shouldn't be. And there, there's a part of the bill that basically say we have to record very carefully exactly who on the Fed voted yes, yes or no for any settlement over, I think, a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that makes sense, the regulatory actions. But then at the same time, there's this separate issue of lending powers where they're saying, okay, well, you need to do things like better define who's solvent and who's not, even though it was really impossible during the crisis to figure out who was actually solvent and who wasn't. And that was part of the whole problem. You have to do things like say exactly how long people can be on loans from the Fed. Well, the whole point of a crisis is we don't know exactly how long that it's going to last. And so the the stuff dealing with lender, uh, where they want to change their powers of lender as last resort, seems totally gratuitous to me. Whereas if they're focusing on its power as a regulator, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the fact is that the, you know, end the Fed types or the audit the Fed types and basically the, the certainly the, the right wing half of this bizarre coalition, um, you know, they really aren't trying to improve monetary policy. They basically want to end monetary policy. I think there there is a... There definitely is a contingent. Like, I mean, there's the Rand Paul contingent, right? They they really are. They they want to implicitly now because Rand Paul doesn't go outright and say I want to end the Fed, but implicitly he was really anti-monetary policy. There is a conservative. There is a moderate conservative group or a moderate Fed skeptic group. Um, but I just I, I guess I just get nervous when they get into interfering with the one thing that seemed to work during the crisis, which is just throwing as much water as you could on the fire. Okay, well, there's the the stuff that happened during the crisis, and then there's like the quantitative easing stuff that happened afterwards. I mean, I guess I guess what I'm saying, this is a natural, a natural conflict because Congress wants power. If the Fed has all this power and Congress can't touch it, then it makes sense for Congress to try to have some of it. And it also makes sense for them to make the claim that, hey, the Fed is not elected and they have this incredible amount of power. And we've seen from their actions that they often are you know, good to their friends. So we think there's there such should, should be a way for to so, intervene. I mean, I think the way I look at this, and maybe it makes sense that Congress would look at it differently, is that the one thing which we have heard time and time again from the Fed, from Bernanke, from Yellen, from everyone, is listen, people, we wouldn't need to be doing all of this crazy monetary policy if only you people in government did what you should be doing in terms of fiscal policy. But instead of doing the kind of expansionary fiscal policy that the country needs, you're imposing gratuitous austerity. And so we need to step up and do a whole bunch of crazy monetary policy that we really we don't want to do and really we shouldn't be doing. Now, if Congress, which does have a lot of power, actually used that power to do good things for the economy, that would be one thing. And then no one would mind about the Fed having lots of power because the Fed wouldn't be using that power because Congress would be doing what it was meant to do. It's only when Congress abdicates its responsibility to use fiscal policy to you know, maximize the potential of the American economy that the Fed feels obliged to step in and act. Okay, I, I agree with you that it's it's a frustrating argument to make when the the Congress seems so dysfunctional. But let me remind you that they did approve TARP and the second path of TARP in order to help homeowners, which it didn't actually do. So there's a little frustration there. And it's also just like an overall kind of poor argument to say Congress is dysfunctional, therefore we should give all the power that Congress should be using to somebody else that's unaccountable. I mean, and, and also, I don't really trust that when you say that they won't use it if Congress is doing their job. Power is power. Like, they'll use it if they have it. So well, I, I guess mean, well, I'm just gotta, saying, like, talk about we can't power. assume that Congress will never do their job. I mean, you got to talk about the power that that Congress is actually asking for here. Let's just talk about the audit the Fed bill, right? Just that specific part, because that seems to be kind of what you're gesturing at. You know, it doesn't really do a whole lot. All it does is say that the GAO, Congress's investigative arm, essentially, or a government accountability office can go in 
and do audits specifically on monetary policy making and just say, we're going to second guess your monetary policy. That's all it does. It allows another body in the government to second guess monetary policy making and then give critics of the Fed in Congress a, a piece of paper to wave around. And it's not really taking away the Fed's independence, just it's it's chipping away at it in a tiny, tiny little small respect. Um, and it's just kind of it, it's a bad precedent more than anything. Well, it, so I mean, OK, so this is this is, I think, the key issue between the two of you. Yeah. That Jordan, you just take for granted more or less that central bank independence is a good idea. And I would agree with you on that one because if it if the Fed is not independent, if politicians can tell the Fed what to do, the result is always a disaster. Whereas Kathy, you seem to think that the Fed should be answerable to politicians, which I think it's crazy. I mean, we've learned our lesson in so many countries, so many different times, that if the central, if the politicians can tell the central bank what to do, the central bank is just not going to, you know, pull the punch bowl away in the middle of the party like it has to. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I do think the Fed should uh, set monetary policy in general. I just think that it should over- it be independent of government. Yes. I just don't. Th- I think it overstepped its powers. I think it did something, and I'm not saying it, it had a lot of choice. Okay, but I'm just saying if we if we want to if we want to formalize that, that's a problem. And I think that these bills are trying to say no, let's not do that. I, I, I think, I'm not convinced either way, but I, I make I'm trying to make the argument. <laughs> I, I, so I guess here, here's my other thing about this, which is that. L- Again, Elizabeth Warren is coming back to this issue of backdoor bailouts and, you know, oh, the Fed shouldn't have done that. They supported the banks, da, 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 da. And a lot of the, you know, I feel like it's just misdiagnosing what went wrong in the in the crisis. The problem is not that the banks got bailed out. We needed to do it. It was hard. It was not something anybody wanted to do. But at that moment, it was necessary. The problem was that then there was no real bailout for homeowners. They botched the effort to renegotiate mortgages to fix the real economy. And that's separate from the fact that the bailouts happened. And also, it's not really a Fed issue. That was much more of an FHFA problem than a Fed problem. I, I am going to stand up always, well, not always, but most of the time for an independent central bank. Um, and, and indeed for more or less unlimited powers in the case of emergency, which is what we had in the crisis. It turned out that we needed those powers. We're going to move on to my favorite subject of the week, which is the UK election. But before we do that, I'm going to tell you about Casper, because this is actually one of my favorite sponsors. Casper makes awesome, cheap mattresses. It's as simple as that. Casper is the sort of honest mattress company which makes really good mattresses and sells them directly to you and you get to try them for 100 days and you get to return them for free and you get to get them for free delivery and they cost no more than $950 for a king size, 500 for a twin size. These are cheap and they're just as good as any other mattress out there, you know. So get a top quality mattress for much less than you'd pay for anywhere else. It's it's kind of a no-brainer. So what you do, because you're smart and you want to save 50 bucks is you go to casper.com slash slate money and you use the promo code slate money and you get $50 off. So that $950 king size mattress becomes a $900 king size mattress. Even better. Okay, so that's casper.com slash slate money, promo code slate money. So, the UK election. What to say about the UK election? Well, the... The only thing we knew about the UK election going into the election was that it was going to be this insanely complex 
result, which was going to result in weeks, if not months, of horse trading to try and put together a coalition, and everyone hated everyone else, and it was unbelievably complicated with this multi-party system, and, you know, and what happened? The Tories got an absolute majority in Parliament, and they can just form a government, as easy as that. It was the one result which no one expected, and it happened. They got 37% of the vote, um, but that was enough to give them 330 seats, which is a majority in Parliament, and then it's over. We have a Tory government. David Cameron is the new PM. Okay, so I am not an Anglophile, but... In fact, you hate English people. I hate them. Like, <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have a Gaelic hatred of the, of the Britain. No, um... And so I'm not really an Anglophile. I haven't folk. I haven't been following this too carefully. But just as kind of a distant observer, it seems to me like the stakes, compared to the differences in the parties in the U.S., the stakes in in Britain seem kind of low to me. Other than that whole Scottish nationalist thing, obviously the stakes are kind of high there. But just the between... stakes the stakes have never been higher. Okay, really. So, okay, so yeah. Tell. Okay. So so David Cameron, who has now been re-elected as Prime Minister, who's a conservative, comes from the right-wing Tory party. Yeah. He pledged during the election, and he has repeated since he got re-elected, that if he got re-elected, he promised that he would have an in-out vote, a referendum on whether Britain should be part of the EU, EU or not. Yeah. So sometime before 2017... There is going to be a national referendum in Britain on whether there should be this thing called Brexit, whether Britain should leave the EU. Yeah. That is huge. Okay. So that's huge because of trade agreements. Why, why is yeah. that huge? Why, why is it huge that Britain is part of the EU? Because yeah. Britain is part of the EU. It's unthinkable that Britain could leave the EU. I mean, what I would mean, it mean? No, what would it look what like? Would the, so, because they're not leaving the currency union. So, what is the, So, what would the effect of a Brexit be? What would? I'm just curious. How, how does that? Dumb it out? down for us, Felix. <laughs> Come on, let's. Like, so, the effect of a Brexit would essentially be the end of the European Union as a political example of Europe sort of coming together. It's it would be economically really stupid for for all British businesses. It would be economically bad for all French and German and Italian and Spanish businesses as well. You'd suddenly have all of these extra sort of regulations which would be very separate in the, in the UK from in the rest of Europe, and it would just be a pain in the ass more than anything else. Um, it might cause immigration, extra immigration problems. I have no idea, but. Symbolically, it would just be this massive step backwards away from this, you know, Willy Brandt vision of a unified Europe where everyone basically wants peace and prosperity. Well, how likely is it to happen now that now that Cameron's back or it's staying? Well, um, here's one data point that um, the UK Independence Party, which was basically the single issue party running on we don't want to be part of the EU. I thought they were also running on we hate immigrants. Is that that was something I got as well? well so there yes, was a little and, bit of and, that. And too. the two, and uh, the two things are very, very linked. Oh, okay. That you know, when you say you know European Union now to a large chunk of the British population, what they think is Romanian immigrants or Polish immigrants. You know. Okay. And and being part of the EU is a, a large part of why Britain, why people like UKIP want to leave the EU is precisely because being part of the EU forces you to accept immigration from other um, countries, that you can't have a single economy without yeah. a flexible labor force, which yeah. can move to where the jobs are. Open that borders, yeah. Um, so the UK Independence Party um, got 3.8 million votes. It got 13% of the vote. That's not trivial. Um, it got a really large... Um, 
for it only got one seat, thankfully, because of the first past the post system. But you have to remember that even though UKIP itself doesn't have seats, there's a very vocal and um, empowered like right wing of the Tory party now. There's a good 75, 80 right wing Tory MPs who are UKIP in all but name. But so, but it, now that like Tories are in power, they're going to have the referendum. But you still need a majority of the country to say yes, right? Correct. And 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 the Tories say they're going to campaign against it, and certainly Labour and the Scots Nationalists are going to campaign against it. And so I'm crossing my fingers that the referendum is going to come out with the correct result, which is a no vote, and you know, a, yes, we should stay in vote, but. As we learned with the Scottish referendum, referendums are really dangerous things which can have all manner of unintended consequences, even if they go the way you want them to. Yeah. And so let's talk about the Scots, because it sounds like <laughs> there was a huge surprise there, too. So, yeah. So the, the Scots nationalists got so they, they went into this election with six MPs. They came out of this election with 56 MPs. That's crazy. It's an unbelievable. They got all but three of the seats in Scotland went to the SNP. And this was on. This was with five percent of the total. And vote. to be yeah. clear, the SNP. I, I love that detail about that. Like we, about, I mean, every democracy has its own special dysfunction. <laughs> but there's actually a, a secessionist party has managed to take maybe it's almost like eighteen to twenty percent of the seats in Parliament with just five percent of the vote. That's, I mean, hilarious and awesome and terrifying. I mean, how are they going <laughs> to act when they get to their work? place like they're like in a place that they don't want to be like they don't even i mean i assume they're not gonna be like picking up their kilts and mooning people like it's gonna be not at all no no i mean snp has been if they've they've had seats in in parliament for many years and parliament and and they'll probably wind up opposing the tories on most things just like labor will oppose the tories on most things you know there was talk before the election of there being a snp labor coalition government and then they would have had real power but in opposition, basically, your only job is to vote no, and they're going to be perfectly good at that. They're not like Sinn Féin, for instance, in Northern Ireland, who has four MPs, but they don't even turn up in Parliament. They just simply, they don't recognize it, right. and they don't turn up, and they don't vote. Just because I'm compl- I'm representing the, the, the listener who really doesn't know anything, like 56 out of how many? Like what? 56 out of 59 Scottish seats went SNP. Altogether, there are 650 seats. So it's not that many. It's like 112th, really. It's still, it's a significant. It's not trivial. Yeah, on five percent of the vote, that's not bad. Yeah. So, what are the economic repercussions of this election? Yeah. So that was the question I wanted. To, when I said that didn't, and when I said that didn't seem like there was a huge gap between the parties, I was thinking in terms of just like domestic policy, not like geopolitical. Oh, we're going to leave the EU. But it seems like one side is saying we want to expand childhood education more. Like the Labour wants expanded a lot. The Tories just want to expand it a little bit. Like the Tories don't want to want to expand the NHS a little bit, but they don't want to figure out a way to pay for it. Labor wants to figure out a way to pay for it and expand it a little bit more. Well, like that, at least that's how it struck okay, me. But so, let's see, let's... so the vote in terms of economic policy uh, was fascinating. Um, this was, to a very large degree, a vote on austerity. Okay. The Tories were elected five years ago on an austerity platform of... If you're in the middle of a recession, what you should do is cut things. And that's exactly what they did. Now, they didn't cut it quite as much as they said they would um, because they're a government and it's difficult to cut things when you're a government. But they did do a bunch of cuts and they did have basically an austerity um, platform and they wound up with perfectly 
respectable growth in the end. And they and they said, hey, look, austerity works. And the Labour Party was running on a much more sort of standard Keynesian, we're way below potential and we should be spending more, we'll pay for it somehow. Um, and they actually sort of moved back towards sort of fiscal conservatism in their manifesto. But it looks very much as though certainly England um, is in favor of austerity politics. Scotland, not so much. Scotland is the opposite, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. isn't that what they are all about, the SNP? Yeah, one thing I'm wondering if there's some, if this isn't evidence of short memories to some degree, because their, England's growth right now is fine. I mean, Britain's growth is, is fine right now. I mean, it's on par with the US, so I'm pretty sure I haven't. I haven't done a side-by-side comparison. It's about 3%. Bit. Yeah, it, it's not far off. Um, they had a low quarter, but anyway, so did we. Um, but the real difference was in the early years of the recovery, when they, when all of Europe and including Britain were sort of double-dipping and they were having a hard time getting any sort of acceleration on growth when austerity, for, when they were first doing the cutting. And it seems finally the effects of that have kind of worn off and now they're growing again. People have maybe forgotten how it seemed to do more damage than good at first. But I guess they they also said it was going to do damage at first. So. It, it did do damage at first. And also you have to remember that, you know, as part of the EU, yeah. um, it, Britain is very closely connected to the EU. And if the EU does badly, that's going to act as a drag on, yeah. on British growth. So you can kind of offload some of the blame onto, you know, Mario Draghi or, or whoever. I forget who was doing it before. But, but, but yeah. the, the one lesson which we can de- definitely learn from this election is never be a minority member of a coalition government. The, oh, God, Nick the, Clegg. The, the Liberal Democrats um, went from 56 seats, which is coincidentally exactly as many as the SNP has right now, to eight seats. Could we also discuss one other thing? Why was Ed Mill... So just... I haven't watched a ton of him, but Ed Miliband, the, the leader of the Labour Party, struck me as just a profoundly uncharismatic individual. And, like, uh, and David Cameron is better? I'd be a little bit, like mildly. I mean, like, so the, the one image I managed to kind of like uh, absorb through osmosis from this entire election was the, the Labour leader, Ed Miliband, trying to eat a bacon sandwich and somehow failing miserably <laughs> at it. And this became a meme on the internet. It was just sort of like his indignity. And, well, here, okay. I so, mean, what was... What, so yeah, it, these guys are not true, charismatic. It's yeah. true that by far the most popular politician in in the UK right now is Nicola Sturgeon, the head of the SNP. Um, the toffs in England are just, they don't relate. No one could relate to Ed Miliband, who's not quite as posh as David Cameron, but almost. Yeah. Um, the only genuinely popular politician who seems to have a popular touch um, is actually, well, there are two probably. One is Nigel Farage, this like ridiculous English public schoolboy who runs UKIP. Um, and the other one is Boris Johnson, who's a ridiculous English public schoolboy who's probably going to be wait, the next leader. Wait, wait, okay, wait, 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 hold on a second. Hold on. Posh in this in this setting means is bad. It's bad to be posh. Well, it's well, fancy. It's, the, you know, it's fancy, huh? Posh, you Out know, of touch. The, the, the posh London types are obviously a tiny minority of the English and certainly the British population. They don't represent the country, but they seem to be running all of the political parties. Yeah. And let me ask you this question, because I spent the morning listening to the BBC. And what shocked me versus American politics is how many resignation speeches I heard. Like everyone who <laughs> lost, just <laughs> I must have heard 15 resignation speeches by posh with posh accents. Well, I mean, so the, three, that the three big resignations were... Um, Nick Clegg, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, who just imploded. I mean, they their, their vote just evaporated across the entire country. Um, 
Nigel Farage, the leader of the UK Independence Party, who failed to get elected, so that was a bit embarrassing. He had to. Um, you can't. You can't really not resign if you lose your election. And um, and Nick Clegg, who somehow did get elected, but I, I saw him get elected on the television live, and he sat stood there with this expression on his face, going, "I kind of wish I lost." <laughs> <laughs> and, and the leader of uh, so, so yes, yeah, so Nick Clegg, leader of Lib Dems, um, Nigel Farage. And, of course, Ed Miliband, the leader of the Labour Party, who everyone had hoped that he would be the next prime minister. And he wound up just doing so much worse than everyone expected that he had to step down. I and, mean, but had to step down. When does that happen in this country? Like, it doesn't happen. Like, what do you mean by had to step well, down? So, so, What's the point so of stepping in down? The, so, so parties have leaders yeah. in the UK. Uh-huh. In Because we have a parliamentary democracy, each party has a block in parliament, and that block has to be led by someone. Yes. Um, the U.S. is different. There's no such thing as the leader of the party in the U.S., except for maybe like the sitting president is generally understood to be the leader of whatever party the president is. The you know, I think I think the equivalent of. might be if Nancy Pelosi had stepped down as minority leader or something after right. the Democrats got thumped. Or I think that's the closest. We don't see a lot of that though. No, it's it's interesting because it's like a moment of humility. Yeah. From you know elected civil servants, which I'm just like I- I've never seen that. But also remember these are elected positions. Yeah. So the leader of the Labour Party is elected by the parliamentary Labour Party. Is elected right. by the MPs who got elected. So they're just going to and get so elected. if if you know if the Labour MPs thought to themselves, well, Ed Miliband actually did a great job and he should be leading us, then maybe he wouldn't have stood down. But clearly, he didn't have the support of the Parliamentary Got Labour it. Party after this fiasco. So yeah, that makes I, more sense. I also just love the like the, she- like the brutal honesty that they brought to each of their speeches. There was no, like, well, we tried hard and it was, you know, we, we did the best we could. It's like, this was a disastrous night yeah. for the Labour Party. <laughs> it but, does seem like, like way more honest. They're, they're just like, yeah. we, it's not even like we got thumped. They're much more like florid in their language about it. I feel like people are throwing bacon sandwiches and they're, and, and, they're, and they're actually much gracious. And the most gracious speech I, I heard in many years, actually, was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party when he got beaten in his seat in Scotland. And he gave this unbelievably gracious speech going, you know what? I am proud to have represented you and well done, SNP. This is just an amazing result, which it was. It is so, so like foreign to us to have uh, like a, br- a brilliant and thoughtful goodbye speech. Yeah, no, that just, I mean, like think about Mitt Romney, like right. Is it the last? <laughs> he's like, doesn't even think he's going to have to give one. Oh, I got a free, I got a freestyle this now. Um, yeah. But anyway. Interesting. Kathy. Um, yeah. What's your number this week? <sighs> 21 billion. That's a big number. Yeah. That's the number of dollars that will be spent for Mother's Day. In this country, that will be spent. Well, that's that was the estimated number for twenty one billion dollars by who? Who estimated that? Yeah, right. That I mean, seems, it, that seems high it's, to me. It it is high, and I'll tell you why. It averages out to one hundred and sixty nine dollars per mother, which I'm like, come on, <laughs> that's a lot. And I mean, here's the thing: I hate Mother's Day. Like, I part two reasons. I grew up with a mother who called it a bullshit Hallmark holiday. That's, Which that's is accurate. absolutely true, yeah. and she was like actually anno- offended and annoyed if we made it if we gave her a Mother's Day card or a gift. And the other reason is that my my family always forgets Mother's Day, so <laughs> Mother's Day is for shit. I'll just say it for that, and I don't understand, and I and I think it's just consumerist and awful, and I'm just throwing that out there. So, Kathy Sons, if you're listening to this on Mother's Day, just <laughs> just. Don't even worry about it. They won't. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. She loves you, hates the holiday. That's okay. 
Um, every day is Mother's Day. That's what I say. Kind of, isn't that kind of true? Like every, you don't have a choice really at that point. Um, that's true. Um, okay, my number. Uh, my number is 17.3%. Uh, that's how much uh, growing up in Baltimore County reduces a child's adult household income wow. by age 26. Uh, there's a major new study this week uh, by Raj Chetty of Harvard um, just about the effects of growing, what growing up in a specific neighborhood or really a, a county or, or city will do to your income over the long term. He has previously done research looking at correlations between uh, neighborhoods and adult outcomes. Uh, what was interesting about this study, or it was actually a pair of studies, is that they really did everything in their power to tease out causal effects. And I know you tend to be very skeptical of this, Kathy, but it's it's a good paper. Well, I mean, obviously, you cannot say definitively anything is really causal when you're doing that, except for one of them is a randomized control experiment. So we can talk more about that later. But it's a really they really do everything in their power to show that there are causal effects and that where you grow up does make a difference for your social mobility later on. It's a um, it seems like a very common sense conclusion. But if believe it or not, up until now, a lot of the research, which he reexamined in part, um, suggested otherwise. So that's why this is a big deal. Um, and it's a, uh, again, there are some cities like Baltimore, which has been on the news, which are poverty traps themselves. Yeah, believable. So I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I couldn't work out what my number was going to be. I, th- I thought for a minute that it might be $700,000, which is the fine that Ripple got. It's like, you know, let's just fine cryptocurrencies for not doing... Wait, know what? your customer stuff. But no, never mind that. I'm not going to do that. Oh, okay. I'm not going to You're cheating. You're doing two numbers. I'm, I'm not going to do cryptocurrencies. I'm going to go back to my favorite, my favorite Argentina. thing, which is real estate <laughs> born. Oh. Um, so, so I really want to see the file on your guess. hard drive labeled real estate porn. Real estate porn. Um, this is my this is my day's point of the day is um, real estate in the Hamptons. There's a lovely big house in Southampton, which is, you know, the posh bit of the Hamptons, which is on the market for $1.8 million. Is that is that a lot or a little? That's not that's a lot. That sounds like a little. For the Southamptons? It's posh, which means bad. That's no, for... No, that's good in this case. That's, that's for a summer rental just for Memorial Day to Labor Day. Oh, Holy oh. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Do I, there are free blowjobs? God damn. <laughs> is there like a pool boy there? You know, what, what? Do you, wait, what is this? Like, <laughs> did you really? I did say that, Kathy. That's <laughs> bad, bad. This is the Slate Money podcast. Our listeners expect a certain level of propriety when we talk about pool boys. One point eight uh, million dollars. <laughs> okay, I'm getting something with that money. <laughs> wait, wait, who? What? Who's? Who's? What? Whose house is this? I don't know whose house it is, but it's on the market. If you want to rent it, make sure you get in there before Memorial Day so you can get your full summer's worth out of your $1.8 But, like, realistically, whoever it is is just going to be helicoptering out there at the weekends. They're only going to be out there for, what, like, 30 days. Oh, God. Uh, Anyway... Well, so um, that's how the other the other point the oh, the, the oh, life of the point oh two percent yeah um, that's it for this week thank you for listening to Slate Money uh, subscribe to the show and you will listen to us next week when Jordan is going to be on honeymoon and we'll have a very awesome and amazing replacement uh, write to us our email address is slatemoney at slate dot com. And write little notes to Audrey Quinn, the producer, because she's the one who made this entire podcast 
vaguely makes sense because I can assure you that in the studio it was just a mess. Um, That's assuming it makes sense. (laughs) There's only so much Audrey can do. I, for one, am really interested in what this final product is going to look like. Uh, Thanks, too, to to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, Andy Bowers, the executive producer, and the whole panoply of panoply podcasts, which you can find at iTunes.com slash panoply. So we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.